0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a
1: month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
2: The black and white headshots in the University of Delaware yearbook of 1965 are almost identical. Combed hair, jacket, skinny tie... A cheery Joe Biden fits neatly among the fellows in his cohort, or any other college class from the previous generation. Before the decade was out, those yearbook photos would chronicle a cultural revolution. The hair, the clothes, the poses would reflect a more immediate, ecstatic and penetrating mode of living, as Hilary Rodham called it in her 1969 commencement address. The defiance of her generation has convulsed America ever since, Born before the end of World War II, Joe Biden isn't technically a baby boomer. But neither was Jimi Hendrix, who was just a week younger. When The Economist first profiled Biden in 1987, an influential pollster had picked him as the candidate to channel the aspirations of the generation forged in the political heat of the 1960s. Three decades later, his showdown with Donald Trump looks like the boomer's last stand. With 51 days to go... This is Checks and Balance. I'm John Frito, the Economist's US editor, and this is a podcast about the 2020 elections. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, is the boomer era over? Baby boomers have dominated politics since Bill Clinton was elected president in 1992. But the demographics are shifting. They stopped being the largest generation of Americans last year. This is bad news for the boomer in chief. Younger voters are more educated, more diverse, and more likely to vote Democrat. Is America on the verge of the next youthquake? In this episode, we'll crunch the demographics, look back on how boomers have changed American politics, and forward to who's replacing them. With me as ever to make sense of all of this are Charlotte Howard, the Economist's New York Bureau Chief, and John Fasman, the Washington correspondent. Charlotte, you were away last week and much missed by listeners to the podcast. How was your vacation?
3: It was fine. We had a rental house where the dishwasher worked and nothing leaked, and that was really exciting because I've been living in a very old house throughout this pandemic. But the real big thing that happened this week is that our producer John Shields went to buy try to buy glasses, and there was a pair of glasses called the Prito. and I feel like as for a journalist to have glasses. That bear your name, like John Pritto is to glasses as J Lo is to bronzer. It's like the sign that you've really, really made it.
2: I was very excited when he sent us that link and Googled it and was a bit disappointed to discover that they're for a very feminine petite shape and they have a slightly <laughs> upturned edge. So <laughs> I'd love to think that they were an homage to my own, um, in the words of Selena Myers, my wheelchairs for the face. But I think I can't claim them, sadly. John
1: Fassman, how was your week? What have you been up to? Uh, we had a good week. We are living back in our house which is under construction. I heard Charlotte's mention of a working dishwasher and nothing leaking and it filled me with envy. What I've learned over the past 6 months of moving locations and living in a house under construction and living in an old house is that I kind of would like to live in a Motel 6 forever. Just like some place where things worked, they changed the sheets, if something didn't work you can call someone. <laughs> <laughs> this
3: is weird. this is just so sad. I mean we sound no. so sad. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, this is what's become of us. you know. John Fasman and I are late Gen Xers. Charlotte, you're an early millennial, so there's a huge generational divide between us. But we've reached that point in life where a functioning dishwasher and motel style room service are really the ceilings of our aspirations. We're going to be talking about generational politics this week, and there's a lot to talk about. So let's start. We're going to be focusing on the boomers. And six of eight presidents and vice presidents since Bill Clinton have been baby boomers. So most members of Congress, But that is all about to change. This year, voting will be dominated by generations younger than 40 for the first time since the boomers came of age. Bill Fry is a demographer at the Brookings Institute, someone we talk to frequently at The Economist. In this week's paper, there's a piece quoting him several times in which we argue that 2020 could be the boomers'
0: last stand. The boomers are contending with a new younger generation. That's gonna give them a run for their money. And I'm talking here about these very diverse younger people, racially diverse, ethnically diverse, millennials, and Generation Z, people who are now all under age 40. The boomers had their way for a long time. <laughs> and, uh, the 1990s, they became the biggest voting block of all the generations. Now I think the door is open for this new group of folks, and uh, they're going to be flexing their muscles. They have a lot of reason to flex their muscles, not just because they're different in terms of their demographics, but they've not been treated very well in the last year or so. And uh, I think they may come out in full force to try to deal with that.
2: And the kind of demographic change we're talking about takes a long time to work its way through. But what is different demographically in the electorate in 2020, compared with 2016?
0: Two things are very important. One is that this younger generation, the millennials and Gen Zers, are gonna be a bigger part of the electorate than they've ever been before. Those two generations are almost the same number of eligible voters as boomers and people older than boomers. That's the first time we've ever had that. But in addition to their size, they're just very different demographically. They're racially diverse. Only a little more than half of millennials and people younger than millennials are Anglos or whites as we say. Almost half of millennials and Gen Zers are people of color. That's very different than what we've seen in the past. And they're also much more educated than those earlier generations. I think those two things make this younger generation quite different in their sensibilities and their ability to embrace inclusiveness, their ability to embrace new ideas about changes in society. Boomers are a little bit stuck in the mud.
2: Bill, your analysis focuses quite a lot on the contrast between boomers and this younger generation, you know, millennials, Gen Y Gen Z or Gen Z, as, as you folks would say, your side of the Atlantic. What about the poor old Gen Xers like me? I'm a, I'm a late Gen X. Have we missed our moment? I mean, are we going to skip, you know, directly from an era of boomer-dominated politics to millennial-dominated politics? I mean, I feel like this is deeply unfair.
0: I do a lot of talks and commentary about uh, demography and generations. One of the first questions I always get in the audience is from someone like you. It says. What about us, we're Gen X, nobody ever talks about us. We're left in, you know, off in the sidelines somewhere. And uh, in fact, that's kind of true, really. I mean, uh, n- numerically, not as big as the boomers, not as big as the millennials. Interestingly though, the demography of the, the Gen Xers is almost the same as the US as a whole. In this election, things will be so close, they may actually be able to tip the balance one way or the other.
2: Good. That makes me feel a little better. Thank you. How evenly distributed is this shift we're talking about, the, the waning of the boomers? Because in electoral terms, obviously, it makes a big difference whether the kind of demographic change we're talking about is happening mostly in states that are not electorally competitive, like California, or whether it's happening in states that have a big importance in the electoral college, like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Florida, etc.
0: I think what's really distinct about swing states in the South and the West is that the Millennials and the Gen Zers in those states are much more racially diverse than the ones in the Midwest and in other parts of the country. The states of Arizona and Georgia and Florida and Texas, in all of those states, the Millennials and younger generations are more than half people of color. As these younger, more diverse Millennials spring up in these swing states in the South and the West, they could make a big difference in turning what has typically been red states to blue states in the future, and maybe even in this election in November.
2: And it's worth footnoting at this point, as ever, that the demography of the US electorate and the voters who actually show up on polling day or, or send mail-in ballots it, is very different. I mean, America if you just judge by the electorate who shows up to vote every four years, is a lot older, a lot whiter than the America counted by the Census Bureau is.
0: Yes, that's correct. And I think this is going to be the challenge. Uh, you know, even though I've been saying that millennials and Gen Zers are going to have a big impact, and I think they will, they're probably still going to punch below their weight in terms of how many of them turn out to vote.
2: So, John, Gen Xers like you and I are representative of the nation, at least, but the future belongs to
1: Charlotte. I'm perfectly happy with that. That's right. (laughs) So let's start by defining what we're talking about. So baby boomers are people born between 1946 and 1964. So that means they're at the top end, they're what? They're 74 years old this year. Gen Xers are born between 65 and 80, millennials between 81 and 96, and Gen Z 97 and onward. And as Bill Fry pointed out, the younger generations are really much more racially diverse, which suggests to me two things. The first is that racial diversity really is sort of baked in already, right? Which means that immigration restrictionism over cultural concerns, the sort of Steve Miller, Steve Bannon thing, they're fighting a war that they've already lost. And they would be better served sort of accommodating themselves to what the country really does look like now and what it will look like for their children and grandchildren. The other thing I wonder about is the extent to which swing state polls really capture the diversity of new voters when they survey likely voters. I know that Lauren Grow Wargo, who runs Stacey Abrams' organization, Fair Fight, argues that at least in Georgia, that polls don't capture the real diversity of the electorate, and that they are in those swing states much more democratic, much more left-leaning than polls would suggest. So I'm not sure if that's true or not, but it is something to think about.
3: It's worth keeping in mind how important those seniors have been in recent elections. So in 2016, they were hugely important to Trump's victory. They were both a big share of voters. They were about a quarter of the electorate and they went for Trump in a big way. So about 53 percent for Trump versus 44 percent for Clinton. That's a big margin. Biden, though, is doing a lot better among them. So at this time, four years ago, Clinton had a deficit in favorability ratings among those over 65 a 13 point deficit and Biden has a 12 point advantage. So that's a huge, huge swing. And it looks like COVID was a big part of that. The numbers for Trump really fell off in April when the pandemic started to sweep across the country. And so Trump's handling of COVID has been a major reason why this very important demographic may not go for him this time.
2: And John, in terms of that boomer influence making itself felt for perhaps one last stand in 2020, which states do boomers have disproportionate influence in? You know, are they concentrated in states that are competitive in the Electoral College or are they in California, New York, other places
1: that won't be competitive in November? Seniors are overrepresented in a number of battleground states, including Arizona, Florida, Michigan, and Wisconsin. And that's why Biden's favorability rating with them is so important. I don't think he has to win seniors, although if he does, he would be the first Democrat since Al Gore to do so. But if he can significantly narrow Trump's standing with them and do well among the Gen Z and millennials who will make up a larger share of the electorate this year than in years past, then I think he could do very well in those battleground states.
2: All right, thanks both. In a moment, we'll look at the Boomer legacy in politics. But first... Your regular reminder, if you're not an Economist subscriber, you are missing out on so much. It's very easy to sign up. You'll get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash 2020 election pod. If you've seen those incredible red skies in California this week, you'll want to read our science section on why wildfires are becoming such a problem. The cover piece this week is on whether offices will survive the pandemic Uh, There's a little piece in the US section on an auction of hip-hop memorabilia, which for Gen Xers like myself and Mr. Fasman is just full of delightful things. Those jackets that salt and Pepper wore for the Push It video and other things. That link for a special rate on a new subscription is economist.com slash 2020 election pod. You'll find it in the notes for this episode on your podcast app. On election night in 2008, few doubted America was at a watershed. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible,
3: who still wonders if the dream of our founders is alive in our time, who still questions the power
0: of our democracy, tonight is your answer.
2: Barack Obama pledged to end the divisive politics that had come before. In his autobiography, he lamented that America remained riven by, quote, the psychodrama of the baby boom generation. The binary identifications of the Vietnam War, pro, anti, hawks and doves, freaks and straights, flared up in Washington in the 1990s. Old grudges and revenge plots hatched on a handful of college campuses long ago, played out on the national stage, Obama wrote. As a candidate, Bill Clinton was all boomer cool, playing saxophone in his shades on late-night TV. But pretty soon after he settled into the White House, it was clear that boomer politics would be more acrimonious than anything that came before. After the 1994 midterms, a Republican House, led by fellow boomer Newt Gingrich, neutered his presidency.
0: Unfortunately, Republican leaders in Washington have put ideology ahead of common sense and shared values in their pursuit of a budget plan. The government is partially shutting down.
2: The longest government shutdown ever was followed by an ugly impeachment battle. In 2000, the first presidential contest pitting Boomer against Boomer was no less fraud. The Bush v Gore legal battle extended more than a month past election day. It fell to the Supreme Court to pick the president. Four years later, a wartime election brought the spectre of Vietnam back into politics.
4: They told the stories of times that they had personally raped, cut off ears. Cut off heads.
2: John Kerry was the Democratic nominee in 2004.
4: Blown up bodies, randomly shot at
2: civilians. He would first appeared on American TV screens as the lantern-jawed leader of veterans testifying to the trauma of the war in Southeast Asia. Poisoned food stocks, and generally ravaged the countryside of South Vietnam. For opponents of the Iraq War, Kerry's record was the perfect antidote to
1: President Bush's hubris. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies
0: have prevailed.
4: I served with John Kerry. I served with John Kerry.
0: John Kerry has not been honest
2: about what happened in Vietnam. But in one of the darker moments of presidential politics, a series of ads featuring fellow Navy veterans questioning Kerry's war record ran that summer. I know. I was there. I saw what happened.
0: His account of what happened and what actually happened are the difference between night and day.
2: By calling on the president to condemn the false allegations, he only fueled the controversy. When the chips were down, you could not count on John Kerry. Kerry lost the election. Swift Vote Veterans for Truth is responsible for the content of this advertisement. And Swift Voting entered the political lexicon. No Vietnam vet got closer to the presidency. The three presidents from that generation, Clinton, Bush and Trump, and three vice presidents, including Joe Biden, all got draft deferments. It's a fact that underscores the class divide in the politics of Vietnam. Amy Rutenberg of Iowa State University estimates 15 million Americans avoided the draft. They were helped by the way the Pentagon redesigned conscription in the 1950s to channel elites into the civilian work deemed vital for the Cold War. By the time the Vietnam War escalated, the system was set up to provide men like Donald Trump and Joe Biden with exit strategies, even though both were notable athletes. Deferments overwhelmingly went to men with means – those who could afford college, support families, or pay for a medical exemption. My
0: friends, we have, we have come to the end of a long journey. The American people have spoken, and they have spoken clearly. A little while ago, I had the honour of calling Senator Barack Obama to congratulate him. Please. To congratulate him on being elected the next president of the country that we both love. It's
2: ironic that it was John McCain who fell victim to Obama's promise to purge the politics of the baby boomers. McCain was one of the few unambiguous heroes of the Vietnam saga.
0: Senator Obama and I have had and argued our differences, and he has prevailed. No doubt many of those differences remain. These are difficult times for our country. And I pledge to him tonight to do all in my power to help him lead us through the many challenges we face.
2: But the balm of Obama only provided temporary relief.
4: Let's see.
2: The contest to replace him in 2016 was the third boomer versus boomer presidential race and the most toxic of them all.
4: Lock her up is right.
0: No.
2: So, Charlotte, one thing that I think overlooked Gen Xers like John Fasman and like me and millennials like you can agree on is that the boomers have done a pretty good job while they've dominated American politics of grabbing the spoils for themselves.
3: Well, boomers had, of course, the very divisive era of the Vietnam War, where you saw different parts of America very much pitted against each other. And I think you see that in the animosity between some of the Boomer candidates in recent elections. But as a whole, they did grow up when the American economy was doing pretty well. The economy was close to full employment, wages were going up, productivity was going up, incomes were rising at a steady clip. And that's not how the model has been working of late. And it's not that surprising that young people might want to try something else. The other thing is that boomers grew up in a time when America's economic model was very much in contrast to that of the Soviet Union. And very young people don't have that clear contrast. They're not growing up in a Cold War. And they don't have the scars of knowing how uh, dangerous that model could be. And so again, it's not that surprising that young people are Bit more radical
1: i think that 's broadly correct, I think we also can 't underrate the divisiveness of Vietnam, not just between those who served and those who didn 't but the sort of the entire sort of generational conflict that it has come to stand for. I find it interesting that Vietnam was a central issue in 2004. John Kerry made it sort of central to his candidacy. In 2008, the Republican candidate was, as you said, a genuine hero for his service in Vietnam, John McCain. And it really didn't come up that much. And I think that speaks to perhaps McCain's temperament. He was a modest person and his military service was just part of who he was. But I find it interesting that in 2008, there were no real fights over Vietnam, which might speak to McCain's personality or to the generational differences between the two candidates. I remember interviewing McCain
2: sometime after 2008. I was writing a Lexington column about Saudi Arabia for The Economist, and he had just come back from Saudi. So I called him up in the Senate rather nervously to ask his opinion about Saudi internal politics at the time. And he picked up the phone and he said, oh, I love The Economist. I, I read every issue. I even enjoyed the issue in oh eight when you endorsed Barack Obama instead of me. <laughs>
1: That is a characteristically gracious statement by John McCain, who really had an unearned reputation for nastiness. He could be brusque and sharp, but he was funny. And his life of public service was really exemplary. He didn't have to go, but he went. He could have gotten out of Vietnam, but he stayed. He was a Republican for national security reasons. He was a hawk but he was not an ideologue. He was a thoughtful person, and he really believed there was a role for government, even if it was a smaller role than a lot of Democrats would have preferred. He was more a Republican of the older generation than the current generation.
3: One of the things that's kind of weird about this election is that you have, particularly for those who are over 65, a case in which Donald Trump is talking about their safety in terms of law and order and the economy. And he can point to his tax cut package, which really did benefit those over 65 in particular by funneling money back to them, versus Democrats who are talking about a much broader conception of keeping America as a whole. I think in the next few months, you're going to see Donald Trump, though, try to make the case for why he is the candidate who best represents the interests of those over 65. You've seen him already in some of the ads that he's put out that specifically try to imply that The elderly are going to be put at risk by this dangerous and lawless new country that they're going to be living in under a Biden administration with people breaking in and the police unable to respond and so forth. And then more substantively, um, his tax cut really did benefit those over 65 in particular in funneling wealth back to them. So that's going to be, I think, something that we'll see a lot of more discussion of that over the next couple of months.
2: Okay, we'll talk a bit more about what the boomers have inflicted on subsequent generations of Americans in a moment when we try to decipher the politics of those generations replacing the boomers.
0: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side?
4: There's an invisible contract we all signed at birth, a promise. Every hour we work means longer days of freedom and security. It paved the road in your neighborhoods and it added up to a country.
2: But when crisis hit, Trump's government abandoned America. For a flavor of what the next generation brings to American politics, it's worth watching Ed Markey's recent campaign ad. The Massachusetts senator is a baby boomer who first entered Congress in 1976. Well, they call me the dealmaker. When Joe Kennedy III announced he would challenge Markey for his seat, many thought Markey was finished. Nobody beats a Kennedy in Massachusetts after all. I'm Ed Markey. I'm running for Congress because I want to fight for the principles that
4: I believe in. The bosses may tell me where to sit. No one tells me where to stand. My father was a union leader. He taught me, don't beg for your rights,
2: organize and take them. But Markey won his primary earlier this month, thanks to a group of young climate campaigners called the Sunrise Movement. Their support for Markey included traditional phone banking help, plus serious social media savvy.
4: They thought the son of a milkman
2: couldn't learn the rules. I need new ones. The cinematic ad went viral. It recast Marky as a Scorsese-style hard man of progressive politics. Featuring a Jimi Hendrix soundtrack, his vintage Nikes, and uncompromising Boston accent, he comes across as an all-action activist grandpa. You think I'm going to stop now? They wish. Green New Congresswoman
0: the deal. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and Senator Ed Markey introduced their Green New Deal to stop climate
3: change and create millions of good jobs in the process.
4: We gotta absolutely crush Donald Trump in November. But if we're gonna end this era of chaos, that won't be enough. We gotta make sure President Biden signs the Green New Deal. We can't wait.
2: Markey plays up his humble origins without ever mentioning his dynastic opponent. Instead, he sinks the younger Kennedy. By borrowing a signature line from JFK himself. We asked what we could do for our country. We went out. We did it. With all due
4: respect, it's time to start asking what your country can do for you.
2: John Fasman, that marquee Kennedy race was so interesting for a bunch of reasons. But one of them, in terms of generational politics, was that it was boomer versus millennial. And it seems all the millennial activists voted for the boomer.
1: Yeah, it crossed, right? You had the Sunrise Movement backing Markey the same way they backed Sanders. This is a overwhelmingly young group of environmentalists who adopted those two candidates because of their policies. And then you had Nancy Pelosi backing uh, Joe Kennedy, I think in part because of her consternation at AOC and Markey siding with her in the Green New Deal. I mean, it helped that Joe Kennedy ran a fairly substance-free campaign, right? That his argument was, I'm young, get out of the way. I'm a Kennedy, get out of my family seat. And that left Markey free to tout his accomplishments, which were significant, compared to Joe Kennedy's, which were, which were much less.
2: Charlotte, as our resident millennial whisperer on the podcast, explain how millennial political attitudes and the political attitudes of generations that follow the millennials differ to those of the boomers and to Gen Xers.
3: There are a few... Issues that are big generational gaps. Climate is one of them. About seventy percent of Americans who are between eighteen and thirty-four are hugely worried about climate change. That's according to a poll earlier this year from Gallup. And but those over fifty-five are concerned. A majority of them are concerned, but not by the same huge margin uh, that young people are. Interestingly. The issues of of race also, there's a huge divide between young and old people. Also, faith in government, that may be the biggest gap, actually, that people who are in Gen Z, a younger generation than me, 70% of them think the government should do more to solve people's problems, while 49% of boomers think the same. And some of this is just what happens as people age, they become more conservative, that's always been a phenomenon. Nevertheless, there is a sign that the partisan split by age is widening. Back in 2000, the vote so people under 30 broke pretty evenly, actually, between Al Gore and George W. Bush. And that's not been the case more recently.
2: There is, of course, always the question about whether younger voters will turn out in numbers. I asked Elliot Morris, who is a representative of Gen Z, I think, to calculate what he thought likely turnout among under 30s would be in November. And he reckons it'll be 11 points lower than it will be for other generations, which sounds, you know, pretty bad and pretty apathetic. But if you go back to 2016, the gap was 20 points. So turnout among under 30s was 20 points lower in 2016 than it was for other generations. So it seems that members of Gen Z in America more broadly are becoming more tuned into politics, probably because of Donald Trump.
3: This has also just been a particularly rough period for young people. For millennials, many of them graduated from college during the financial downturn, the financial recession of 2008. For young people now, they're graduating during COVID. The group of people who are 18 to 29 have accounted for a disproportionate share of the layoffs during COVID. So it's been a particularly difficult time for them.
1: One phenomenon that we haven't talked about is the increasing prevalence of college education. The Pew Research Center looked at the educational attainment of 25 to 37-year-olds in each generation. For boomers, around one quarter had a college degree or higher. For millennials, the share was 39%. To the extent that America's electorate is bifurcating along educational lines, with the Democrats becoming the party of the more educated, that seems to suggest that the party identification of millennials may be more durable than would otherwise be the case among young people. It may not be the case of just young people being left and then gradually growing more conservative, if those with college educations do not drift over to Republicans, as they have in generations past.
2: We're obviously generalizing a lot here. Not all boomers are conservative. Not all millennials are left-wing, far from it. We're talking about changes on the margins. But I do think it's broadly true that there are generational political effects. So if you go way back to the middle of the 20th century, Americans who came of age politically when FDR was president and when Truman was president, they seem to have stayed more democratic than Americans who came of age politically when Reagan was president and George H.W. Bush. And it kind of makes sense to me that for those Americans whose formative political experiences were the Iraq War, the financial crisis, the presidency of Donald Trump, the presidency of Barack Obama as well, it sort of makes sense that they will lean, more democratic, and be you know, more enthusiastic about the role of an activist state in American life, and that that effect will endure and sort of stay with them as they age.
1: I think that also says something about Gen X's relative apathy and quiet, right? To the extent that what determines our politics is what happens from the time we're 14 to 24. I mean, for me, that period was 89 to 99, which was unipolar triumphalism, right? So Nothing matters. Everything's fine. We're gonna just going to keep going on as we are forever. There were no huge problems to jump in and sort of wrestle over.
2: Are you implying that we can't blame the boomers, that actually it's our fault, John? <laughs> I think it might be our
1: fault. Yeah, I would just like to reassure my boomer parents that we're not talking about you guys. We're talking about your friends and neighbors. <laughs> well, before you go, we're going to continue this battle of the generations in the quiz.
2: The Economist profiled Joe Biden when he launched his first presidential run. The paper wrote then that Biden identified himself as, quote, the voice and conscience of the baby boomers. In 1987, when that piece appeared, the cohort was preoccupied with their growing families and their education. What did candidate Biden promise to set up in the White House to make it more family friendly?
3: Daycare?
2: Yeah, that'd be my guess, a daycare center. Charlotte got there first, so a point to Charlotte and to the millennials. The article noted the senator's knack for compromise, quick thinking, and good sense. It also said he could be long-windedly indecisive. Friends of the senator compared him to which dithering character from Shakespeare?
3: Oh, um... Not... not bottom. Polonius? No, I think it's going to be either, um bottom or maybe even malvolio somebody like
1: that yeah i was gonna guess polonius or malvolio
2: it was nothing so comic
1: i'm afraid it was hamlet what huh i guess we were we were tricked by his age right it was it was age bias now we saw him as he is now rather than as a young guy then
2: huh some friend right i'm not sure i'd want my friends describing me as hamlet to (laughs) a major news (laughs) outlet doesn't seem like a very friendly thing to do yeah Thank you, John. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, John. Thank you. That's all from us. If you like the podcast, please tell people to listen and leave a rating and a review in the usual places. If you do that, maybe you'll be spared Charlotte's Dylan impersonation. If you want to get in touch, you can email us at radio at Keep sending the feedback. We do read it all. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll have more checks and balance next week.